I wanted to welcome John Radoff. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the my my second of all time video cast. It's uh, you know I've been talking with you on Twitter Spaces for over a year, although we actually haven't done a bunch of Twitter Spaces for a long time. Remember that? I don't know if you remember those Twitter Spaces. It was me, you, Jonah, Board Elon, and of course you know Super Rare Community Manager running those spaces with ga gaming spaces. Basically, it's good times. So glad to have you on the video cast. And man, you have a amazing history, like really great experience compared to a lot of people in this web three space right now. Can you go into like your origin story? We like to start off and like kick it off with like, where did you come from? How were you raised? Like all the way up until like, where did you start seeing your first taste of success? Cause you have a long history of like really knocking it out of the park with success. So if you could start like that, that'd be amazing. Uh, thanks, Lucas, and, and it's great to be here. Uh, and I was I was just in a Twitter Spaces with with Board Elon uh, a week or so ago, so so it's nice. it's still happening. Um, <laughs> let's see. Guy. So starting at the beginning, uh, I I grew up as a kid who liked Dungeons and Dragons and programming computers. I started programming when I was about eight years old. How did that happen? My father worked at a company called Digital Equipment Corporation. Um, at one time, it was the second biggest computer company in the world back when IBM was the biggest. And they built mini computers and, and he would sometimes bring me in like over weekends and stuff and plop me down in a mainframe computer room with VT100s, which are these old fashioned terminals. And as a kid, I would just sit there and I taught myself how to program and started making like adventure games. So that, that's how I got my start. But um, first, it was my first game too, by the way, I was 11 and I, I made a, an adventure, like kind of like called like, Hey, uh, go left. You have to like program, go left, program, go right on an Apple two. Yeah. So, so not unlike that. So like with two dimensional maps and tr tracking your location and then different things could happen to you if you landed on certain map locations. So yeah, I, I built some of those things as a little kid, um, then got into the online world and the online version of games. So wrote a game called Space Empire when I was 14, which was this multiplayer game where, where you build up an empire in space, hence the name, and people would compete with each other and try to basically who, see who could be, be the most dominant. Really, it was a social game, though. The way you would win is by forming alliances and, and being the one who is most effective at that. And then made another game called Final Frontier, kind of a inspired by Star Trek. I had always been a big Star Trek fan growing up. Didn't realize that one day I would get to make a Star Trek game, which I which I eventually did if we fast forwarded a few decades. But um, that's, that's kind of how I got my start. But then was doing all these online games, playing online games, and went off to college. And within a short period of time was playing this game called Gemstone, where I met the person who then became my my wife in the future. But first we started a game studio together. So I dropped out of college. She was in San Diego at the time. Um, she flew. Wow. That's a really good, that's a dream, huh? Starting a, a business with your your significant other and actually making it we work. Did, we did make it work. I'm not going to claim that that's easy. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in that process. And no, you definitely test the edges of, of, uh, your relationship when you do that, but, but it worked and we've actually done it several times. So 
That was a company called Novalink, where we built an online game called Legends of Future Past. We built uh, one of the first internet service providers. Um, then we went on to create this piece of technology called ePrize, which is a platform for building websites right at the dawn of, of I remember it. Yeah. So we did that. It's like early <laughs> blog and wiki kind of software. So we did that right. together, uh, took that company public, um, sold the company, <laughs> did the did the whole journey with that organization. Then uh, took some time off, did a lot of scuba diving, did a lot of traveling. I would have taken a lot of time. Yeah, off. <laughs> I did take a lot of time off, but kind of completed my retirement and then unretired and uh, and realized that what I really love doing is building stuff and creating stuff. Um, and went back to startups, started a company called Gamer DNA. And what that company was essentially like big data analytics is the unsexy term of today. But back then it was what you would call a company that was trying to pull in lots of data about various behaviors and use that to produce intelligent results of some time. So kind of like pre-AI, early machine learning kind of applications. And, and what we did is got a real-time feed from Microsoft about all the achievements being earned on Xbox. So it turns out that if you get the feed of every Xbox achievement someone's receiving, you learn a lot about that person. You can use that to build up a player profile that can be used for all kinds of applications like recommending a game to them. You could help game companies understand in an aggregate sense how people are interacting with their games, what people like about them. You can use it to power ad networks based on what people are interested in doing. So that was gamer DNA. Um, but you know, I started getting jealous of all these game companies that were actually building games and wanted to get a little bit closer to that in the course of it and got the crazy idea of, of starting Disruptor Beam, which was a game studio and had this idea of building very story-driven, narratively rich games, but doing it on mobile, which is a place where there really wasn't a lot of depth to gameplay at the time. Mostly mobile games were clicker-type games, kind of mindless-type experiences. And I thought that there was a huge and growing market for people that wanted more than that. And that was the initial idea. Now, what I did learn about that is that in mobile, people don't give you a lot of time to understand what the story is. And that led me to the conclusion that if we set our games in the worlds that people were already familiar with, that I'd be able to get past that initial engagement problem, that, that engagement hurdle that you have with games. So I, I basically chased down George R. Martin, who's the author of Game of Thrones, Took me like two years, eventually got in front of him and he liked the idea Pretty great. and we created a game called Game of Thrones Ascent, which is uh, the first online game built for Game of Thrones, ran it for six years. And that, with that, we earned a reputation that led us to several other you know, big entertainment franchises. Uh, but the most successful game we built out of that then was Star Trek Timelines, built on Star Trek. So childhood dream of doing something with Star Trek uh, was finally realized there. But we, we built a really great game with, again, story and narrative elements, character collecting elements. We let people really play through the fantasy of 
all the kinds of away teams that you could construct if you could mash together all the Star Trek that ever existed. Wow. I like that, man. Tell me, uh, that's really cool. So it seems like you're a big, like, it sounds like you're an MMO guy, right? Sounds like that's like kind of your, your, your big, your big thing. So you wouldn't have like favorite games on different consoles or did you play consoles as well? Oh, I, I am a multi-device gamer who plays on pretty much everything you can imagine. Like the biggest game I'm playing right now is Diablo four, which is kind of an MMO light, but I'm playing it on console, which is atypical. I I played all the previous Diablos on PC actually. Um, but it, it was just kind of a strange circumstance in that, uh, my son wanted to play with me and play on the gaming PC. So he's playing on the PC while I play on the PlayStation. And so crossplay has been really great for that. And we get to go off in Diablo and, and play together. So I'm on PlayStation. It actually works pretty well. The control scheme on it is great, but I, I love that. I've played, I play a lot of, um, you know, not necessarily, I don't just play um, MMOs. I also just love story and narratively driven games. So Last of Us and Mass Effect are a couple of my favorite games and game franchises. I love strategy games like Civilization. Um, But yes, I've played a lot of MMORPGs. I've been a big World of Warcraft player. I've played EverQuest 1 and 2 and Asheron's Call and lots of other MMORPGs that, that people haven't really heard of. Sounds like maybe you haven't heard of a couple of those. That's for sure. Yeah. I played MMOs. Like I've had a lot of fun playing MMOs in my life, but mine is obviously probably more like the mass population where I like first person shoot them. you know, like my games are, don't get me wrong. I played Zelda and, you know, resident evils and, you know, every, every game you could think of and, you know, Tomb Raiders and all that stuff. I love that stuff. Like, especially Zelda is one of my favorite but it's, uh, yeah, I would say I'm more of like a, I was more of a console guy. Although I found myself in rooms for Counter-Strike in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was a big Counter-Strike. And then like Unreal Tournament 2, like Tower, Tower to Tower. Um, I love that. I love, I love that game. That's an, ama- that's an amazing game. And everybody thinks like it's, you know, if you talk about like Unreal Engine now, everybody just like talks about the engine, but they don't, I don't think a lot of people remember the game, right? The Unreal unreal tournaments. And that's kind of sad to me just because it was, it was so fun. I mean, it was like some of the most fun I've ever had is playing the old school counter-strike and the, uh, and the, and especially the, the unreal tournament twos. But yeah, my games were like first person shooters, like golden eye for N64, oh like that, that blew my mind. I was like about to graduate college. I remember this. It was like, it was 99. I was, I graduated 2000. So it was like the last year of my college. And I was introduced to Goldeneye and they were like, what? I was like, what are you playing? Like, what are you guys, what are you two playing in here? Cause they were just like addicted to these, my roommate and his friend were like addicted. I was like, what are you, you guys have been here for like hours. What are you playing? And I looked at it and I was like, huh, that looks interesting. Let me try it. And I was just like, I became addicted within like 60 seconds probably. Yeah. And I sucked, I sucked at the game. But like literally three years later, I was like one of the best. At that yeah, game. that was a great game. So was, I mean, I played it. That, that, now we're going way back in terms of not quite yeah. as far back as <laughs> the VT100s we were talking about earlier. But that's, uh, yeah, yeah I, play, I played that as a sniper and, and just mastered sniping everything. I think I went through and just killed 100% of or nearly 100% with the, with the sniper rifle on that game. So yeah, fantastic game. I played a lot of Zelda back yeah, in that era. So there's a lot of games out there that are like 
again, just because I don't know the names doesn't not make them not great. Like there's a lot of games even for just the regular Nintendo that I can think of that were very obscure. I don't know if you ever heard of the game Rygar. Mm. Do you remember Rygar at all? See, that's oh. what I'm saying. There's like, a, and then there's like, yeah, there's a lot of obscure games that I was just like, hey, oh, this game is amazing. They'd be like, what game is that? I'm like, oh, okay. So you're not that into games, but no, I mean, just because they're obscure does not make them, at least to me, obscure doesn't make them not amazing games. Um, Final Fantasy, I played a lot of too. I mean, that was a, those are some good role playing games too. So yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a role playing guy. I do. I don't know if you. What do you call Zelda? Isn't that? What, do you, what would you call Zelda? Like I, call, I think yeah, I think of it a, as a role playing game for sure. Me too. Yeah, me too. And I I was addicted to that and um, also. Tomb Raider, like I played that, and then Resident Evil games. I guess those are kind of, I guess they're kind of you know role playing games, especially Zelda though. I definitely think Zelda is a role playing game. So if you had to, what 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 are you working on now? What does Beamable do? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, so after building games for a while at Disruptor Beam, I just saw all the complexity that goes into actually constructing online games, you have to build a lot of technology and there wasn't any software that could really help speed you through that process. A decade ago, you used to have to do the same thing with 3D graphics, for example. So you'd have to, you'd have to go and program all the 3D graphics yourself and, and build your own 3D engine essentially. And then Unreal Engine, of course, started becoming more of an option for people and so did Unity and it solved a lot of 3D graphics problems. So the graphics problems were relatively solved, although you still had to apply really great artistry to it, but you had to construct all of the server technology, all the cloud-based stuff. And when you're dealing with MMOs or online games, there's a lot you have to do in terms of systems and then getting them to scale and creating a workflow for your developers to actually make it efficient and productive for your whole team to be able to work on these games. And no one had really cracked the code on that. And I, I looked at myself and my background and I had done a lot with big data analytics platforms with gamer DNA. I had built creator platforms with ePrize where we had to build up enterprise technology around workflow for making stuff online. I thought, geez, there's just not a lot of people who have quite the Venn diagram of experiences of data and hands-on game development, understanding the visceral part of what it is to live the life of a person in a game studio building games, which is super hard to do, and creative platforms. So I, I just did that kind of skill assessment and added to that the opportunity that I saw, which was I could help thousands of people, maybe even millions of people make the games that they dream of that otherwise they're never going to get to market because there's so much complexity in this technology. So I gave you the long answer to almost more why I'm doing what I'm doing, but that is the problem with Beamable. Okay. So what is Beamable? Beamable is a software platform for game developers to have all of the cloud and server and live ops stuff that you need to build a game so that your team can go back to the fun stuff, which is the features, the experience the storytelling and and I mean fun all the way around it's it's more fun for most game developers to build those things but it's literally the fun stuff meaning the fun stuff players care about so if you have a lot more 
opportunity to sure. build fun parts sure. of a game, you're yeah. radically increasing the likelihood of success. You're going to get to market faster. Your de- development velocity goes way up. So, you know, we're in the business of just helping game developers be successful with online games. Yeah, it sounds like to me, Beamable is like a structure. It's like a no-code tool uh, for layering things that, that takes the complexity out and they can focus on more of like the design, like you said, the look and feel and the lore of the game, the storyline. So the fun part that actually gets people and like keeps people there glued to their seats with the storyline and the lore and the characters and the character development, they can focus on that and let the the framework already be built, like 80% built, right? And then they get to like doll it up by like 20%. Does that sound right? Yes. Although what I'd add to that is it's not enough just to be, here's what we discovered. It's not enough just to be the no code tool, the set of components that you can plug in because every game has unique requirements. So everybody always wants to customize. So the extensibility of the platform within the languages and the development tools that you like is very, very important. And this is really what both Unreal and and even more so in certain ways, Unity discovered with their platform. So Unity took the idea of a 3D engine, which is that framework for graphics, and they added to it programmability through C-sharp scripting. They added a marketplace called the Asset Store, which sits around it. Um, and those capabilities really help to democratize access to 3D engine game development, but do it in a way that was highly extensible so that you build an ecosystem around the idea. And that's really what's been missing from game servers and game cloud technologies in that there have been things in the past that have existed. Like you could go to Microsoft, for example, and get PlayFab, which is their platform. That's an example of like APIs that you can kind of pull off the shelf and they'll do certain things that are valuable to you as a developer, but it's not extensible. It's not scriptable. It doesn't have an ecosystem around it. So that's the gap that we saw, which is how do you really turn it from just a collection of components to a real platform that people can bring into their business and then build around it. And and that's what we've been doing with Beamable now for the last couple of years. That's awesome. How does, how does, how do you see the web three space actually, or if you do see the web three space benefiting from Beamable, would you say it's kind of like a unity package or kind of like a unreal tournament package where they're actually able to use it? And by the way, it doesn't have to be just Web three because I'm we're not we're not Web three people. Like at the end of the day, we're we're tech people. You're a game developer. I'm a game marketer. <laughs> I uh, you know been in this space for 23 years, um, not just games, but you know marketing. And um, you know how does it? How do you see it benefiting? Like, will it or can you see it like actually bringing some adoption to the like, the Web three space or even outside of that? Like, who's using it right now? I guess you could say. And then how does it apply to the Web three space if it does at all? So short answer, yes, it applies quite a bit. And (laughs) we work with a lot of Web3 game developers at Beamable. Um, But let me unpack it a little bit. So first of all, Web2 and Web3. Most game developers on Beamable are so-called Web2 developers. They certainly don't describe themselves that way. They just think of themselves as game developers. They're building for PC or a mobile game or whatever. And to them, like there isn't this this uh, structure in the market between like blockchain versus non-blockchain. In fact, 
most of them probably don't think about blockchain in any given day of the week. Um, that's most of our game developers. For Web3 developers, we have a lot. This comes back to the extensibility stuff we were talking about earlier. So we realized that Web3 game developers who want to build games around open economies or blockchain integrations, they need all of the same stuff that any game developer needs. They need, you know, if you're building a real game, you need game servers with social systems and content workflow system, all the things that actually let you run a live services game. And what I saw in the market was Web3 was becoming its own silo again. Like if you look if you look across game developers generally, cloud and game server stuff is always a silo within every game company for the same reason that this technology hasn't been commoditized enough. It hasn't been democratized enough to bring it out to game developers so that they can just build on top of a platform and not have to build all these things themselves. And that was happening again, but in Web3, but with this added complexity where you build up this technology silo inside your studio for connecting to your blockchain of choice and building your own smart contracts and linking the economy of your game back out to the chain. And then on top of that, you're now thinking you have to build all of these game server components that know how to talk back and forth between the web two and the web three world. So I saw that and it was just a huge mess and exponential complexity, which just was completely unnecessary in the market. So our model at Beamable is you can use the same tools that any game developer used is to structure the economy of your game, the items, the way items gain attributes, the way you establish you know, treasure tables and stuff that you earn when you go and you know, slay the boss, whatever, it, whatever the rules are within your game, you can use the same tools that are very robust, dynamic, expand, expandable, extensible, that applies across the whole game ecosystem. And then if you want to add blockchain to that, that's literally check a box in our environment and you federate with the blockchain you want to use. So if you want to be you know, integrated with Ethereum or Polygon or Solana, that's minutes, in our, like literally minutes. And you haven't had to build anything already blockchain specific. You're just extending your economy of your game into the chain that you want to use. And that gives you a lot of future proofing because now you don't have to worry so much about which chain it is. You could, you could be developing and you actually have some agility. You could choose the chain later in your process if you want. But more importantly, it gets you off of this whole technology analysis paralysis or technology treadmill that I see way too many of the Web3 game developers just getting stuck on, which is they're not increasing the velocity of the parts of their game that actually matter, which is the features that your player is going to care about. Your player, frankly, outside of, you know, the DGEN communities, <laughs> like you're not going to find a lot of people who care even what the chain is. Uh, in fact, I, they don't I even agree. want to know what the, they don't want to know about tokens when they first play your game. They just want to start having fun. I think people who are approaching this in a smart way, they engage with the player. They show them a super fun game. The trading through open, 
open marketplaces, that comes later after they've proven the value to themselves, which by the way is the same exact way that the first open economy game I ever played and got addicted to played out, which was Magic the Gathering. So I got introduced to it when I was in college and no one told me, well, this is kind of being silly, but no one told me about like the currency that I had to get first to play the game. Like it would have been US dollars because there was no cryptocurrencies when I started playing Magic the Gathering. Um, but if I had, I, if that had been a requirement, I probably maybe wouldn't have played it or wouldn't have played it for years later. No, what happened is my friend brought over a deck and he's like, here's a deck. I'm going to show you how to play this game. It's super cool. I played it. It was a great game. And then he was like, and you do deck building in this game. You can customize the deck. You can go to the card store and you can buy more cards and dream up your own concept for how this works or buy booster packs. And then that opened up a whole additional super fun aspect to the game. And then much later into it, like probably after I had been playing for a year plus, did I start getting into actually collecting cards Turns out I was kind of a, a dummy about it because I had a Black Lotus. I had all the very valuable cards of Magic the Gathering. I sold my, I bought a Black Lotus. This is gonna, if there are real Magic wow. the Gathering fans out there, you're gonna, you're gonna shake your head in a moment. But I bought a, I bought a Black Lotus, I think for probably five bucks, 10 bucks, something like that. And I sold it for 200 bucks. <laughs> Yeah, I was pretty young at the time. I sold it for 200 bucks and I thought I was a freaking genius. Like, wow. You were yeah, theoretically. Think about it. You were look at the, look at the flip you did there. Like that's a I really good a flip. 20 extra turn. I was like, John, you are really good at collecting this shit. Well, it turns out that yeah, you, you sell them for $50,000 now, or even, you know, mint condition alphas. I think one sold for a couple hundred thousand. So I, if I had held that, if, that would have been a, a pretty decent investment, but uh, maybe not quite as good as as Bitcoin, <laughs> but uh, but right up there. <laughs> Bitcoin pizza idea, like I keep thinking back to that. And, and anytime I, it's funny because when I was I was trading NFTs in like 2021, very actively, and it was like you could not go wrong. You could flip, you could buy one for you know 800 bucks and flip it for 10, 20 x mm -hmm. easily, and. I remember people would give me grief about it. Like, hey, you you got that, you got that NFT for like 0.09 ETH and you and you flipped it for one. Don't you feel bad about that? I'm like, it's a 10x return. Why would I feel bad about that? Like, I don't even understand. And that's where I think these these degenerate kind of like thoughts of like, hey, if I flip it at 10, 10x, what if it goes to 20? I'm a I'm a real investor or I have an, a strategy. I'm like, hey, if it gets to here. I'm selling it and I don't care if it goes to 20. It could go to 50 as far as I'm concerned. I want a 10X return. That's enough for me. 2X, should be, we should all be happy. All right, let's be honest. Two, three, four X, that's crazy. 10X, if you don't sell a 10X, like, I don't know, man. It's just, I don't know what to tell you. I, I've, <laughs> I've played in every version of this. Um, you know, for, so I, I, I was running a JavaScript Bitcoin miner on my blog back in 2012 or 2013, back when you could still throw JavaScript onto someone's web browser and actually mine efficiently enough to make money on it. So I was buying, I was, you know, legit mining Bitcoins on other people's computers back in 2012. <laughs> um, so I, nice. I, that's how I, I got that start as a, as a 
kind of a miner, although once mining became the serious thing, I didn't bother with it anymore. And then, um, you know, and I hodl Bitcoin today and Ethereum and a few other coins. And, and I've certainly, you know, played around with being a degen and buying shit and then flipping it. Um, and I've made, uh, yeah, I, I would say I've lost some money doing that a few times, but pro- on balance, I've probably done pretty well with it. But um, but listen, like that speculative behavior, I don't think is actually like as fun as that is as, as a thing you can do when you're making money at it. That's not what this market is actually about. Like, I, I think it's fine. Like it can provide some liquidity mm-hmm. for people that want to get into it cool but like if magic the gathering for example was a game that was purely about the black lotus stuff i was referring to early again like there wouldn't be a black lotus worth that much right because the only reason the black lotus is worth that much is because because it's an overpowered card because it's old because it's highly desired and there's so much utility not just utility and gameplay but like this real affinity that big magic the gathering players have to it which is like just having that card is awesome so like there's a real collector mindset so your hierarchy of needs within games if we think of it as like a version of the maslow hierarchy like the bottom is utility like if there's no utility to these items and utility i mean from a from a real fun standpoint like the items just have to be really fun in the ecosystem in the economy of that game such that people are playing it and if they never sell an item in their whole life they're perfectly happy to have bought it and or just earn it or whatever it is within that particular game and that's fine that's like your base level and then i think the next level up from that is like collectors who don't really care as much about what the exit value is, but if there's something super cool, they just want to have it. Cause it's like, I don't know if you look behind my bookshelf, I've got like comic books and stuff out there. The likelihood of me selling any of those comic books, even the ones that are kind of valuable is like very low. Like I, like I just want to have those comic books cause it's really awesome to have like, you know, the first edition of this, of the Sandman compendium or something like I want that. Uh, and then at the very, the, the little tiny piece of the pyramid that is just like speculators who are, tr- who are making a business of trying to buy and hold and then sell or buy and flip. Um, that's, that has got to be the minority of your population for your game or else they rule everything. And in fact, they'll just cause your economy to go to zero faster than anything else. So I, I think there has been a change for the games that I've been seeing over the last year or so, which is, first of all, so much money just dried up anyway, like in the, in, in the bear market. Absolutely. So no one's getting funded to build a, a, a game to flip. So not, not re- not recently. Yeah. so, you know, anyone who's now, I shouldn't say anyone because it's games and it's crypto. So there's always exceptions to the rule, but in general, anyone who survived this long and is still at it is now authentically pursuing a real game that at least they intend for it to be fun, whether it will be fun. That's always hard to pull off in any kind of game. The odds are always stacked against you, but they're trying to get there. 
and some some will accomplish that. And and there are games that are getting close to a, even a AAA quality for certain kinds. If you look at like a Shrapnel or something like that, um, Wild Cards, like that. These are games that are being built with sizable budgets by teams with experience building really high production value games. And then there will just happen to be a crypto economy around the trading ecosystem of, of the items that you use in this game. That I think is going to generate some interesting results. And, it, and it's not just the double AA, A, triple A, it's also high quality, just pure fun experiences. Um, you know, there's a game developer that we're working with uh, creating a game called Mystery Society, for example. It's a startup from Chris Heatherly. He ran games for Disney. So, and then he ran games for NBC Universal. So it was like super legit guy building a really interesting social deduction game that just happens to also have an open economy using blockchain to implement things like avatar customization and creating your mansion where the social deduction game plays out. And I think he's got a, he's onto something that is both good in terms of the economic structure of the game, but there's just a real pure fun to it. Like if you play this game, you will have fun, even if you don't have to get into these aspects of collecting and speculating or whatever. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you said that games have a hard time making it even out of the web three space, which they do, right? Let's be honest. Like even the, even if a game does make it like, what is it like a 13 month, window of a successful game and that it like loses its juice and then like people start to abandon that game for another the next best game that's out there i mean even people with budgets of like 20 30 40 100 million dollars to make video games still only have like these very very limited runs usually i'm not saying the outliers aren't there but there are definitely games that have been like spent a lot of money and then people just like lose interest in like you know 12 to 13 months and then move on to the next thing what are your thoughts like of course. I mean, isn't that i mean I mean, any yeah. game is really a community and yeah. the staying power of that community is going to be the fun a function of a lot of things. It's going to be about what do you do with that community? What kind of events are there? What kind of content do you continue to roll out? Is there, in fact, gameplay system that supports an elder game, which is fun to come back to on a continuous basis? Something that I'm really proud of in all of the mobile games that we built back at Disruptor Beam, because if you look at games like Game of Thrones Ascent or Star Trek Timelines, Star Trek Timelines is a game that's it's entering its seventh year. And we have people that are still playing that game that signed up the first month that that game existed. So you can create it, but it, it requires a lot and it requires a long-term vision about how people are going to be playing it. And you just have to continuously engage with that community. So uh, it it certainly can be done. Um, I I have some potentially provocative feelings about this whole concept of quote unquote Web3, which is like, I don't think that brand has done anybody any favors, frankly. Um, I, I agree with you. And, I, and I'll, I'll just say this, like, I don't. I keep trying to tell people to not call Web3, just say you're making a game. Just say you're exactly games. because there are no web three. Let let me say this: there are no web three games. Okay, there I are agree. games. 100%. There might be web three trading markets, like web three um, exchanges, 
like that 100%. has some meaningfulness because then you're talking about, well, how do you take this item you own and trade it with other people in a way that um, isn't like in the control scheme of, of the game publisher. So if I buy a magic, a physical magic, the gathering card, I can go to my friend and we can trade that. We didn't have to ask anybody permission to trade with each other. I can take it to a card store and try to trade or sell to them. That's all that a web three exchanges. It's essentially allowing you to do these transactions that you could do with physical objects, but do it with digital objects. And that does mean that there's going to be different kinds of game systems that are required to support that because Magic the Gathering, as one example, or Pokemon, very different in terms of how the game system has to be designed around the idea of card collection when it's completely open like that versus something like one of these card games where you get it in a box and it's not expandable and you have to play within a very specific set of patterns or if, if or if it is it's expandable it's because you bought the expansion box or something everybody kind of plays with the same stuff like that is a different cut and there by the way there's nothing wrong with either of those both of those can be super fun game systems to play within the point is that the game system has to be different when you think about the structure of the economy of how those objects are acquired in the same way that, you know, web three then impacts the way you have to rethink the economies of games, but forget the whole concept of web three. Like if you market a game as a web three game, you're going after this market of DGENs and like I said earlier, you can always find the exception. I'm sure there's going to be some super successful DGen focused game out there. Maybe, maybe Yuga Labs is kind of heading that way. I don't know, but um, for the most part, the gaming market doesn't care about that stuff, and they don't think of themselves as categorized in that way. Make a fun game and let the game speak for itself, and then design a game that supports an open economy and then provide those connections to decentralized exchanges. If an open economy and open trading makes sense for your game. That totally makes sense. What you just said. I always think too, that if you're going to market it as a web three game, also have a different marketing plan for regular people are just saying, Hey, here's a really fun game. You can target both, both audiences. You just target it with marketing not actually saying this is a web three game. If you do that, it's uh, you're definitely shooting yourself in the foot with audiences. People will be almost instantly turned off. If you say web three NFTs, anything to do with that right now, it seems like if you ever mention web three outside of people that are not like doing things like that are blockchain related right now, you get the, Oh, you're a crypto bro piece. I'm out. You know, like, I don't even want to talk to you like every single time. So I definitely think it's, it's limiting yourself. You're kind of like making, kind of setting your game up for failure. If you actually go, I'm a web three game. Now, like I said, if you do it marketing wise, where you're just like, Hey, here's the, uh, here's a really great game. And then you target a very, very niche people on like Twitter somewhere and say, Hey, here's a, here's an amazing game. And by the way, it's, it also supports crypto blockchain. People will be like, Oh, cool. This is great. It's a web three game. Let them say it. You don't have to say it. <laughs> so just an idea. I don't know um, that we figured so, out how to market web three games yet. Oh, now I'm bringing. I don't think we back. need to. I don't think we need to. 
Yeah, it's it's hard to think that we need to because we had in-game economies forever. Like economies of, of games have been there forever. And we don't need to say blockchain. I don't think we need to say NFTs. I don't think we need to say these things. They'll just use them and they'll, they don't need to know they're even there. That's what I see it as. It's just structure. And all they need to know is that if they want to trade their items, they can trade them. If they want to know, like if somebody owns an item, right? There's, that's what that, that's what blockchain does, right? It's ownership and authenticity. Is it real? Do you own it? That's basically what it does, right? And then it allows you to trade across markets like pretty easily. And, you know, kind of like this, a decentralized way of trading. So you don't actually have to go through some, although, you know, you kind of do have to go through a centralized like exchange somewhere at some point. So there really is no decentralization, except unless you do like a peer-to-peer -peer transfer, right? So I guess that's really, there are a couple of ways to do this, but I just wouldn't, I don't see that as a selling prop. Like, again, I, I see like what, what Starbucks is doing, and they don't tell anybody about NFTs or blockchain. And I see what Reddit did. And they definitely didn't say a word about that stuff. They were like, no way. Redditors would have like destroyed them if they would have known that was like NFTs. But once they had them, they were like, oh, I mean, I can make like a couple of grand? Sweet. All of a sudden, I, they were like singing the praises, right? But they didn't know. And I think, I think there's like 95, 95, uh, 94%, 95% of the people that are on Reddit still don't know they have a wallet. They don't know they have NFTs. They don't know this stuff, but they like their avatars. They like their, you know, their built, their built up avatars. And again, when Amazon comes out with their NFT marketplace, it's over with, like, because they're not going to say NFTs. They're just going to say, do you want a digital collectible? And that's it. They're, they're, I think that, I think the vernacular of like NFT is like saying JPEG or dot, dot PNG. It's a file extension. You know, like no one cares about like, oh, is that, they're going to, I think they're going to say, is it on chain or is it not, right? Is it, can you tell whether you own it or if it's authentic? And uh, that's all they care about is authenticity and ownership because ownership means you can sell it, you can brag about it. Authenticity means it's real. A Louis Vuitton handbag, you know, a, a like a fake one can't really be sold for a lot. And there's ways to tell whether it's fake or not. And like the smart people can tell. Same thing with any of those like fancy watches, right? You, get it, you can get a fake Rolex on Canal Street in New York city for like a hundred bucks. Um, or you could go buy one for 10,000. Most people don't know the difference, but guess what? That's what blockchain does, right? Ownership and authenticity. And I, I think with some of this deep fake stuff that's coming out now, I think blockchain will help. Hey, does that video come from us? Is that video authentic? If it is authentic, if it's a real video, it would be coming from this place. It would show there was ownership and authenticity of that. But I don't know. We'll see. Cause like, what if someone shoots a video, right? <laughs> Someone just shoots a random video and you can't really tell if it's, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a dilemma right now. All this stuff, like the uses of blockchain in general in games in any, everywhere else is just like, we're still figuring it out. And like, how does it work? How are we going to get people to like use it? How are we going to get people to like be interested in it? And you don't, I don't think we need to, I think we hide up behind the scenes a little bit. And then we just like say, Hey, here's a really great game. Have fun. And then all the rest is ancillary. Like, Learn about this stuff after you get into the game, into the lore, into the messaging, into the character development, all that stuff. Like get into playing the game. Once you're playing it for hours, if not days and hours, like then, you know, figure out the rest of the game. I don't know. I, I, don't, I wouldn't care if like well, some of my favorite games are on chain. All I know is if the game's fun, I'm going to play it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's unfortunate that the state of the market is at this 
point where it's almost like one has to be a little bit embarrassed for lack of a better term to to talk about that aspects yeah. on the that aspect on the front end and and we can thank all of the the bad actors for that whether it's the worst dgens out there or the rug pullers or the ftxs of the world so like they're 100 percent to blame for for kind of making like the terminology toxic but like maybe let's set that aside and think about what the benefits of this are and and you pointed at a couple so ownership i think is a very underestimated concept so right now when you play a game you don't really own the unless you're playing something that's blockchain based you're playing something where you're really borrowing the content or you're licensing the content while you're playing it and players know that now, like these games have just been around for long enough that everybody knows that you're playing within someone's sandbox and they can take the toys away anytime that they want. And apparently most of the world is fine with that because they do do that, right? Like I, most of our game developers are building, for example, free to play games that cater to that market. I play lots of free-to-play games. That It's a totally normal thing. So also I'm not here to even say that like one is better than the other, but there is something really interesting that you, that we might tap into with what I, I like to think more in terms of open economy games where you actually do own things. So I I own that physical Magic the Gathering card when I buy a physical Magic the Gathering card. I don't own the intellectual property of the card. I don't own the ability to just do whatever I want with that card, but I own that physical representation and I can sell it, dispose of it however I want. And if people believe that they own something in a game, the way they approach the ownership of that digital item or the physical item in the case of Magic the Gathering is just different than the way that they're going to approach everything else. And that means that they might do things like be more likely to buy the items in the game. They might play the game for longer. They might behave in a lot of different ways in that game than they would in a game where they just know they don't own something and it can be taken away uh, at any moment. Now, this is just a at least in digital games, this is essentially just a hypothesis that I have today. It's a proven thing when it comes to physical items, when we're talking about Magic the Gathering, because I think there is a pretty clear difference there. But it, it remains a hypothesis that we'll find out over the next two, three years as the as good quality games come out, whether ownership actually is the piece that makes the difference. And if it does, then I think we'll see it in business KPIs like conversion rates and how much people own and you know portfolio size and things like that. The other piece you touched on, you called it authenticity, but there's something that's very closely related to that, which is just provenance. So when you talk about the Louis Vuitton bag, like the fact that I know it's real is because there was some way of tracking the provenance back to its source and knowing um, that it really is the thing that it purports to be. There are also experts out there who can inspect it and and they can maybe they know the formula that that tells you that it's that it's truly unique. But the most assured way 
is if you can literally trace owner the chain of ownership back to the manufacturer, in which case then you really know that it's authentic. And of course, blockchain does that really well. It's an inherent property of blockchain. And there's a lot of interesting applications of that. One is what we're talking about, knowing that it came from the source. Another is that items can acquire a history which is transparent. So I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things where in addition to the utility value, items have utility value, but items also have collecting value based on a number of other properties which matter to collectors. And one of the things that matters to a collector is things like aesthetic value, like how cool is it, how unique is it, but also the story associated with it. So that I know, for example, that this is an item that passed through the hands of this famous player for whatever reason. John Radoff. John Radoff used to own this. Oh my God, I have this thing increased 10 times because he used to own it. Exactly. Yeah. So if if that happens, then because in provenance, that's a real thing in the world of physical collectibles. Like I I don't have to prove that provenance is a value because it is essentially what makes the whole world of collecting go round in a huge number of ways. It just hasn't been applied quite yet to digital collectibles. And as that becomes better known, this is another thesis, which is that in addition to the authenticity, the provenance will allow items to gain a lot of collecting value, which I I think could be interesting. Uh, Yet another piece that's related to that um, is understanding the authenticity of where content comes from even when it isn't something that you're going to trade. You mentioned videos, for example. With generative AI, which is something that I write a ton about, it's pretty soon, it already is, but it's, it's not quite at the, at the crisis level yet, but it's becoming a problem and soon will be a crisis that you won't be able to distinguish you know, fact from fiction online, there will be videos out there showing the president of the United States saying something, and you will not be able to run an algorithm on it that tells that it wasn't real, except if only we had this technology that could cryptographically sign something from the source saying that they really expressed that piece of content. Well, we do this for software, right? So we we digitally yeah, sign pieces of software so that you know that it came from a particular software vendor and therefore you should be able to trust it on your computer. The same thing can be done with all manner of content. Um, videos, images, text can all have cryptographic signatures associated with it. And as it gets mashed up and combined into other things, you can keep a digital record of the provenance of how that item has been transformed, that object, that video content has been transformed over time. So that could be done transparently with blockchain and or it could be a Merkle tree and be done by signing authorities. There, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but we basically have the technology now. What we don't have is like the browser technologies that support at least pervasively the ability to show the history of content objects. We only do it, for example, at the level of a website when you look at certificates and who was responsible for gaining the certificate. So this is going to be something that's going to happen 
more and more. It, that has to happen in my view. And, and there's no real technology outside of cryptography that could actually accomplish this. And we're going to need it soon because we're, we're within a year away, I, I think, of it being at a potential crisis level where anything can be forged and no one's going to know. <laughs> like reality is just going to start getting decoupled from digital synthesis pretty soon. So, so we better get on top of that. Yeah, we do. I think what you said is really interesting too. It's, you know, in the world of tracking and analytics too, like you said, I'm an analytics ad tech guy as well. So I keep thinking of like the dilemma we're going through right now of like cookie-less tracking and figuring that all out. But now we have to actually, like you said, we do have to figure out how to, like you said, software development, You there, there's a way to trace it back. Like, where did it come from? You know, it's it's baked into the code. And in this case, how do we do that for, to make sure that these videos that are being produced by AI, because I mean, theoretically, you could actually tell AI like, hey, don't only, don't only do this, but also bake into the image or bake into the video as if it was created authentically from this location, from this GPS mark where the president was or whoever this person was, and you could actually make it fake everything. It's going to be a tough, I don't know how that's, I honestly don't know how that's going to be able to work. Well, there, what you could do, what you could do is if, for example, if the White House releases official videos, they'll sign it and say that this is signed by the White House. It, there's a photographer True. at the White House taking pictures for the New York Times or whatever. That photographer will sign it. Yeah, you just solved it too. Like there'll have to be like streaming cameras at all times, right? During like a presidential speech that can't be tampered with. That is literally just a lot, not like a, it doesn't have to be live as in live, live, but it needs to be streaming during the entire speech. So if someone goes, Hey, after the speech, the president also said this like off camera, you know, and that's why I guess that's literally the only type of protection you can actually have is that where there's like cameras on you at all times. So you'd be like, Hey, that might be a deep fake. But, and here's how I can prove it. Here's the video feed from that entire session. He came on, said his thing, walked off. He didn't say anything crazy or outlandish like that fake, you know, that deep, that deep fake AI video uh, said it did. So I think that's, that's kind of like putting us towards, I don't want to get like any, I hate politics. So I don't want to get into that, but I just want to say like, that is kind of putting us into a, a way of like being surveilled like at all times to make sure there's no deep fakeness happening. Right. Cause someone can be like, Hey, I just got into a car accident, but I'm going to go have AI build a video of the guy of my, this guy I know down the street and like put, make AI, you know, send the video and say, Hey, look, I took a video from my, my phone. And that was this guy driving a car and it wasn't me. Here's the video proof of it. You know, like there's really no way to tell unless there's like cameras all over the place showing, like basically surveilling us, watching us, making sure we're, we're being honest with each other. If we have this ability to like, fake this stuff. It could, it doesn't have to be a guy on the street, but you know what I mean? It could be, you could literally say, Hey, I just make some random dude and make it look like they stole my car driving down the street or whatever it is. So yeah, it's, just it's not that this isn't a political left or right thing. Like in general, I think people, if they're authentic themselves and earnest, then they care about knowing what reality is they're not just trying to trick people. Totally. So, you know, if, if your basis, if your basis for reality is understanding truth, um, then we all ought to want to try to get to a shared, 
uh, a shared truth on things. So it doesn't require surveillance to do that. It just requires people opting in to digital signatures on things. So it, it just means that when you take a video, you could add something to it that says, I'm the one who took this. It's not about the subject of your video needing to, to be part of some kind of surveillance state. It's just about you, the person who recorded the video saying, this came from me. I took this video. I'm going to opt in to signing it, which means that I was the one responsible for recording the video. You could kind of check with me through a Merkle tree or a blockchain based history that shows that yes, in fact, it certifies that I did take this. doesn't mean that you'll always have to. In the future, you'll be looking at a video and just like a piece of software that you download right now that's not signed, you'll see some videos and it'll say this, this video is not signed. And then you'll just have to reach your own conclusion about whether you want to believe it or not based on what's there. But at least if it's signed, then you'll be able to relate it back to the source. And it doesn't even mean that that has to be um, traced back to a specific identifiable human, just as we have, you know, pseudonymity within blockchain for a lot of people, it could be traced back to a pseudonymous identity. At least you know where it came from and you can associate the reputation of that source and whether you choose to think that it's a, a good source for you or not. And then it kind of leads us into the third interesting application of blockchain, which is just the overall composability. So this application is also something that's potentially composable because as assets gets, get kind of smushed together, like the president's speech in that example, like a lot of people are going to want to add commentary to it. They might transform it. They might add graphics to it. That's a transformation over the original content. You can have the chain of custody on this, the provenance, so to speak, that says, okay, embedded within this particular video asset, it came from the president's official source. And then I, as the, you know, pick your favorite news source, Fox News or MSNBC, it doesn't really matter. They're the ones who now transformed it and you can reach your own conclusions about what value they added or subtracted from that piece of content. So again, it's just, it's really more about accountability and knowing that there was some series of individuals, pseudonymous or otherwise, who were involved in it and that you can compose these assets together and understand what was behind it. One of the big challenges for language models is that this problem is actually a lot more complex because with video, you kind of create these assets and then pieces of videos can kind of get merged together and you can track the pieces of it. But with language models in AI, it's actually a lot more complicated because now you're dealing with stories and narrative and text and like this is a, a, not a solved problem right now, but an interesting one to think about, which is how do we start figuring out how to explain the sources of knowledge and content that cause a language model to, to create 
the particular synthesis in a given circumstance that it did. I think, again, that's a problem that we're going to have to figure out for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it might be intellectual property related issues of ownership and confidentiality and all that, but I think also just trust and authenticity, knowing where your sources come from so that you can figure out what was behind it. And and then I think we'll get to a place of a high level of of trust and transparency around all this information. But composability in games, where we started all this is, you know, is the idea that these digital assets can play within other things. Now, it might not be other games. I'm not a huge, huge believer in like a World of Warcraft item showing up in a League of Legends game. Like, I I don't see that happening. It does kind of happen like that across Roblox games, for example. So there there are some proven use cases for certain kinds of ecosystems where avatar items and stuff could enjoy some transportability from world to world. So, so there probably are some interesting things there, but I'm talking more about like, what does it mean to own something? If you own something, then you can dispose of it how you want. And that of course should mean that you can choose to sell it in the venue that you want, the marketplace you want. And, and that's the most immediate, uh, you know, application of composability and composability and ownership, I think are, are very closely related concepts because if you own something, you should be able to compose it into whatever you want. Heck yeah. I want to compose everything. Let's go. <laughs> I, I can't wait for people to watch this. <laughs> people are like, wait, what? <laughs> What's his favorite game? <laughs> hey, so I'm going to, I'm going to run through some console systems here real quick with you. And you're going to tell me, your favorite game for each, if you don't mind. Oh, please. All right. I, I'm gonna, all right. I'm, I don't I'm gonna, I'm I, it's all a blur sometimes. So I'm probably going to think I played a game on one console and actually it was another one, but I, good. I'm going to try. I'll, I'll correct you if I can. If, if I hear <laughs> it's a good chance to embarrass right, myself. So, Let's go. <laughs> no, I'll, 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 I'll so let me think here. That's how far are we going to go back? Okay. Um, and yeah. Let's do... <laughs> <laughs> let's Atari do uh, Atari, 20, Atari, Atari 2600 what's oh, your geez, favorite game Atari 2600 what was my favorite game that is such a good question uh, pro- you know what Indiana Jones Ooh, no. that's a no. good one oh, I man. yeah I'm, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Defender I was oh, a big yeah. fan I love the Defender one. game in the arcade though so much but on the 2600 oh, yeah. I just played that Indiana Jones game so many times with with my friends too. Yep, that and Pitfall. Oh, Pitfall's I played a lot game, as well. Of course. That was yeah, the first game I, I played. I was so yep, same. I think I was on an I was on I was on an Intellivision when I played the first Pitfall. And it like blew my mind. I'm like, how do I get one of these? It was so great. So yeah, okay, let's go to the next. And then the first Nintendo. Uh I had an NES. I mean Super Mario Brothers, of course. Oh, tried and true. I like it. I like Castlevania with... too, but uh, yeah, that but, was a good one. Uh, Castlevania was good. You know, why don't you give me a top three? You can go yeah. top three. I can. Go, I'll do top three. Um, I feel like it just goes into a long tail after that. What was the? Um, I mean, I played so much. Like I was like when I was a kid playing Spike. that, I was an expert Super Mario boy. Contra, Akari Warriors. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about uh, the Super Nintendo? 
Um, I just, so let's see. I, I didn't stick with Nintendo as consistently at that point. So first of all, I would have continued. No, well, but I became much more of a PC, REST, Amiga gamer. So I was much more computer centric for quite a while before I returned to console. What was the, what was the console that brought you back? The console that brought me back was actually a Sega Saturn. Ooh, wow. Talk about obscure, <laughs> man. Saturns. Woo. I played Saturn a couple times, but not often. Yeah. Man, I lo- Saturns are I, old I played a game that probably almost everybody hasn't heard of called A Stall, which was probably my favorite game. It was just like an adventure, you know, game. But but uh, Daytona Racing was probably the most, the other super memorable game that I played on Sega Saturn a lot. I always, yeah, I always think of uh, Super Nintendo. You, uh, you know what? I, I am getting them mixed up too now. I'm just going to say, maybe we should have skipped. But, I, but the, you mentioned GoldenEye earlier, and I'm thinking, well, that's, what that's, did that's, I that's play Nintendo's GoldenEye? I, I honestly can't remember. What did what the heck did I play GoldenEye on? Um, there, there was a period yeah, where everything, I, I've owned so many of these systems over the years, I don't even remember where some of them were on, but... Um, you know, I had a PlayStation two, my favorite PlayStation one and PlayStation two, like awesome. But PlayStation one was definitely the jam. I didn't have, I did not have a PlayStation one. Uh, I went to, I went direct to PlayStation two and, um, Metal Gear Solid was. Good choice. I love that game. game. I love that game. And I, I was so addicted to Metal Gear too. Yeah, and I and um, invisibility. Like I remember the invisibility part of like Metal Gear Two. Just so. And what uh, were all the Nintendo such- systems along the, the way, or and the uh, because I, what did I play? Zelda, what did I play? Uh, Zelda Ocarina of Time on that was a favorite game. That was N64. Yeah, that was N64. Okay, so then I got an N64, um, and I played. And I played Zelda on that. And that was a favorite game. And then I got into Xbox. What was my favorite game? I probably. Um, oh boy, why am I blanking on the name of the Soul Calibur? Yeah. So I got really into fighting Ooh. games for a while and Soul Calibur. And um, in the current generation, I'm mostly playing PS5. How do you like PS5, by the way? I've heard mixed reviews. I love my PS4 Good. and I love my PS5. So uh, I have no mixed review. It's, I love it's, the product. It's a, it's a great it's a great device. And right now I'm playing Diablo 4 on it. Um, I've got Horizons Forbidden West, but haven't made enough progress on it because Diablo 4 came along and now I'm totally focused on that. Um <laughs> Elden Ring, of course. So, oh, I started started Elden Ring on PS4. So I, I, I actually mostly played Elden Ring on PS4, not PS5, because I've only had the PS5 for a few months, actually. Yeah, that's interesting, because I always think there's a game system that brings you back, right? And I, I I remember, uh, I was, I went from Nintendo to like Super Nintendo, and then to PlayStation, and then PlayStation Two, and then I was just done with games for a while. Hmm. I was just like, all right. You know, college really took, you know, I had a full-time job, I, full-time job, going to college full-time, and I had a girlfriend. So, you know what I mean? Just <laughs> trifecta. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of work. I didn't have time for games, but 
you know, I, the thing that brought me back was GoldenEye. And then I took a lot, I mean, I played GoldenEye all the way up until like 2000, 2003, disappeared from games for a while, except for on the PC, of course, I was always playing Counter-Strike, but not always, just playing it, you know, whenever I could. But the thing that brought me back, it was 2008 and it was PlayStation 3 and it was Call of Duty Black Ops. Who like Modern Warfare brought me back. Black Ops had me playing like I would come home on the weekend. And then when I knew it was a double points weekend for Call of Duty, dude, I'm an adult. Okay. I'm in my 30s and I'm, and I'm early, like just turned 30. And I'm coming home. Everybody's going out on Friday nights, having fun, like normal people. I'm like, it's called it's double points weekend. I'm going home and just playing like black like black ops all day, all night, just racket in the just racket in the XP points. And I would there's a there was a trick where if you left your PlayStation on, even after double points weekend was over, it would keep double points weekend for the entire week too. So I could come home after work, play, and level up. So I was like prestige 15 by you know, like three or four days in because of the double points weekend. Mm -hmm. Man, that was a great game. So that's the game that brought me back. And then Bl the Black Ops 2 was decent. And then I I haven't played games in like, wow, since 2018. I have not actively played games. And I love video games. Like I obsess. Once gotta, I get into a game, I'm just like, that. Oh, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, there is no time in my life since being about eight years old that I haven't played games. There, there's varying levels. There's times where I've done kind of nothing but play games. <laughs> and then I've done other stuff besides play games. Like I mentioned, like we, when I was giving my part, my partial life story earlier, um, and I had a, this startup called ePrize and, and sold that company. There was a period of time, I mentioned scuba diving around the world and travel. That's one thing I did. But when I was at home in that time, definitely I was playing a lot of MMORPGs and whether that was, you know, Star Wars Galaxies and then uh, World of Warcraft and getting and, uh, you know, a lot of RTS games, big Starcraft player, big World of Warcraft, uh, not World of Warcraft, but Warcraft player as well. So, um, so I played a lot of games in that time, like, like an excessive, if there's such a thing as excessive number of games, definitely I had the time to play as many games as I wanted to at that time. So I don't quite play at that level nowadays, but, but I stay pretty current and I've got, you know, most of the consoles, I've got an Xbox, I've got a PS5, I've got multiple switches in the house. I've got, you know, multiple gaming PCs. I've got devices, I've got iOS devices. I still, I'm still hanging on to my PS3s right now. And I was so disappointed when they just be, they're just obsolete. Like no one goes, like uses them anymore. But man, I, I still hang out in those game lobbies sometimes. I turn it on and be like, well, come on, just, just enough to play a game, play one of these games, guys. Just enough, just join, just join. Nobody ever shows up. So the struggle is real, my man. Um, yeah, maybe I should maybe I should get a PlayStation Five. You're if you're talking it up like it's something great. How is uh? Have you ever played Call of Duty on that? Or you're not a Call of Duty guy? Like first I person I, I am not a big competitive Call of Duty player. I don't play. I there was once a time when I played FPS games a lot more. Um, so I don't have an opinion on Call of Duty on the PS Five. But I mean, it's it's a great system. Um, the last Call of Duty I played was several years back. I can't even remember what number it was, but it, the last time I played it would have been on 
uh, on Xbox. So, yeah, I've never played a Call of Duty on Xbox. I don't think I've ever played a game on Xbox ever. It was always, and that's not true. I used to play, I used to like test play games all the time, but I wouldn't really call it like I never had, I never owned an Xbox. It was, I was always very PlayStation heavy. It probably has something to do with me working for Sony Pictures. I was very loyal to the brand. So, and also I, what I liked about PlayStation at the time, I don't even know if this is true anymore, but the PlayStation network was free. Like you didn't have to pay for it. So I'm a big fan of free. At least it was free then. So yeah. Otherwise I would just play. Yeah. Man, they, I they, they, they have some great, I mean, I'm a big, um, enjoyer of story driven games and, and there are some studios that build exclusively for, PlayStation that are just really talented storytellers. Like, uh, you know, as a, I loved Uncharted on, I haven't played it on PS5, played it on previous generations, but in particular, Last of Us is just such a fantastic game, both the original, the expansion, the second. Um, that's a game that everybody should play who, who loves story games. Um, but also on Xbox, I, that's where I played Mass Effect originally in mass effect one, two, three. I, I love all three of them. Uh, the second one was my personal yeah. favorite, but fantastic game. Um, yeah. there's, there's just great con I mean, listen, you in, in some ways you just can't go wrong. There's great products on all the platforms today. Maybe you want to switch if you want something portable. <laughs> PS5 is fantastic. I don't have the current, current generation Xbox. So, I couldn't give a fair review to it, but I've owned most of the previous generations of Xbox. And uh, there's just great, great studios out there, great storytellers that that can manufacture content for all of these devices. And and by the way, though, like you don't need a console; you can play on PC. There's like there's awesome games on PC that give you a different kind of experience with a keyboard and a mouse than you're going to get on all these other platforms as well, like MMORPGs and RTS games and things that require click precision, I think. Uh, there's a tremendous indie game development scene on on PC because you don't have to ask anyone's permission. Game yeah, that's PC. nice. Yeah, that's nice. There's no doubt about it. I have to admit, I went through my phases with, uh, you know, PC games versus console. I always like console just because you could just like flick it on and it's ready to go. You don't have to worry about your your console usually crashing on you. Um, the computer kind of did, even if it was like juked up, great processors, all that stuff, great, you know, video cards. They still sometimes just would crash out of nowhere. So kind of, uh, but then again, I haven't really played PC games for a while. So what I like, what I like about I can... PC is the innovation. So the the great thing on console is that there are games there with really tremendous production values with good storytelling where the gameplay is very reliable because console games tend to be just very the most heavily tested games that get out. Yeah. There's notable exceptions that I that I won't get into, but there's uh there's really there's just great great content, reliable content on that. PC of course, there's a lot more variables in play, so things can go wrong and hard, harder to build games for PC that, that operate across the widest number of game systems. But uh, I love the innovation in PC because 
you don't have to call up Sony or Microsoft and ask permission to build a certain game and get approved and go through a process. You just start hacking away and building whatever you want. And that's actually where I think we're going to see most of the innovation in the coming years. PC and, and, and there may even be a renaissance of web browser based games. And that's just because I hope so. I actually yeah, hope these, so. These are just yeah. the environments where you can build a game. It's and because you don't have to ask permission, and because we're going to have a lot more technologies, whether it's the generative AI stuff that helps you create content and code and things more rapidly, or 3D engines like Unity and Unreal, or stuff like my own company, Beamable, to stand up all the game server technology in the online worlds. Like there's so many things at your disposal now that when you add to that the innovation of these small teams of game developers i think we're going to see a real renaissance we're already seeing the renaissance of gameplay that's happening i, I totally agree with you yeah i totally agree there's no doubt about it and uh, i like i like that the distribution of a game isn't reliant like you said on my, like microsoft or sony it's open the uh, open the distribution's open source. You know, that's what's great about it. If you have a social media following, <laughs> you can actually uh, leverage that to like open source or distribution. And I mean, let's be honest, if you control distribution, you control the basically the popularity and success of a game getting proliferated out into the yep. market. So it's pretty amazing that time we're living in right now. I mean, we couldn't do this back in like 2007, 2008, 2009. Not really. Not everybody had the internet as much as they do now. So I think it's pretty amazing that we got this, this ability now. So absolutely, my man. So, man, you got some good taste in games. I'm going to get a PS5 because of you. <laughs> then we'll probably go buy it this weekend. Probably actually, you deal. can actually get fun. one now. I know. That's what I was going to ask you next. Is like, are they still like $2,000? No, like no they're, to they're totally just normal prices now. Like, I mean, I, uh, I bought mine on Walmart online. I, I forget what, I mean, right. around even the holiday season, I think is when I bought it. And Walmart is like, sure. Like here it is. It arrived like two days later. <laughs> so I didn't have to stand in a line anywhere. I didn't have to scroll around with like wish list cues and waiting for someone to say that I was finally number one and I have five minutes to like confirm. No, you just get, you just get That's one awesome. now. I just want to know, like, I, I just, I just don't want to, I'm so worried about being disappointed with the Call of Duty games. Because I really liked Black Ops and Black Ops 2, but I really didn't like Modern Warfare afterwards. So I think I think Treyarch and Infinity War just have like different ways of developing. And I, I'm a big, I'm a big Treyarch guy, and I'm not a huge fan of Infinity Ward as much. I'm not saying they don't make great games, they do, but uh Treyarch is my jam. Yeah. So well, you know what? Your alternative is uh splurging a gaming PC, grow grab uh, you know, uh RTX 4090 that'll that'll only set you back 1500 bucks or so and you'll you'll see amazing amazing graphics fidelity that'll blow any current gen console away and and uh there's there's you'll you'll be guaranteed the best version of all of these games yeah, I bet. And the, the best I ever did with a gaming PC, like a real legit one, was an Alienware, like all souped up Alienware one. And it was like obviously before, I think it was right before Dell Bottom. So, yeah, I'm yeah a, a really good, you know, you could probably spend 4K on a good game. Obviously, you could spend more on a 
gaming PC, but a good gaming PC with a top of the line NVIDIA graphics card right now. But you price them around 4K. But that said, you could you could use it. You could do other stuff on it. You could you could do word processing on it. <laughs> oh, here you we do go. Video editing on it. You could. Use- I could do. A spread, <laughs> I can make a spreadsheet on it real quick. No problem. <laughs> Google Docs works amazing yeah. on this computer. Go totally. get it. It's worth it. You could totally. You can totally have Chrome open with like two hundred uh, browser tabs, and and it'll keep up. <laughs> That's awesome. John, man, it's been a pleasure. Seriously, absolute pleasure going into the weekend after talking to you, man. It's going to make my day. So I very much appreciate the time. You're you're really good people. And hopefully we can do more of these, man. I'd love to jump on again, like maybe do some more Twitter spaces too. But this has been an absolute pleasure. You have so much knowledge. I want to like share more. Like I want to hear more of your stories. Like, man, we have a lot in common too because of data analytics and all that stuff, building that stuff out. Like I've built out data, you know, data companies and things. And like the most unsexy stuff is usually the most profitable stuff. So we'll get into that next time. But John, thank you so much for coming on today, man. Thanks it means sure. a lot to me. Yeah. And it's been amazing. It's, and you're a, you're a wealth of knowledge and I can't wait to see what you do. So thank you so much. Great being here.